Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here. If you've got a Bible, you may want to turn to this. We're in Acts chapter 4. It's on page 1034, and I think it's also going to appear on the screen. I'm going to read from verses 1 down to verse 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's just spend a moment in quiet, shall we, before we come and look at those words. Loving God, I want to thank you for your word to us today. I want to thank you for the truth. I want to thank you for the promise of your spirit this morning. And I want to pray that you'll excite us, you'll challenge us, you'll encourage us, whatever we need this morning, Lord. Give us hearts that are open to you. Holy Spirit, would you come and do a work in our midst today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've already heard our dog get a mention this morning. We've got a two-year-old Border Collie. Here she is. We think she's quite cute. If you like dogs, you may join us in thinking that. But if ever you've had a dog, um, particularly if you've had a puppy, 
When you start taking the puppy out, what happens is everybody gives you advice. And you get people say, you should have your dog walking on this side. And then in the same day, somebody said, no, your dog needs to be on this side. You should have it in front of you. You should have it behind you. I think some would want us to carry her around. You know, it just you get this myriad of people saying, do this, do that, do the other. For the most part, I just let it wash over me. You know, when you've heard so much advice, you think, I don't know which to take, so I'm just going to ignore all of it. But then last weekend, we were out walking, and we saw this bloke, and he had another border collie. And this dog was incredibly behaved. When he said, come, it just came. When he said, speak to these people, it came and spoke to us. Not, not literally speaking, but <laughs> it wasn't quite, it wasn't off Britain's Got Talent. But this dog came round, and it was just literally went round us talking. And there was evidence that this man knew what he was doing with this dog. And you know, that gives credibility, doesn't it? When you can see somebody who's obviously got a dog well-trained, you take notice. Evidence is so important if you're going to take note of somebody. But this morning, we're in Acts chapter 4. I think a few weeks ago, quite a while ago now, you're in Acts chapter 3. I can count, you know, 3, then 4. And chapter 3, there was a passage about a man who was lame, who Peter and John spoke to him and said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And we found out at the end of this passage that he was over 40 years old. Goodness me. Our boys are always telling me how old 40 is. I turned 40 last month, and since then they've been telling me I'm past it, I'm decrepit, I'm falling apart, they just keep going on. But if I hadn't been able to walk, and then suddenly in the name of Jesus, somebody had commanded me to get up and walk, and you saw me walking about, that is something incredible. It's an incredible miracle that we find taking place here. And what we find happening in this passage and in chapter 3 is that the evidence that God is at work gives Peter and John a platform from which to speak. They've seen kingdom evidence, the people, and now what they see is Peter and John coming and explaining something of their hope in Jesus. But in the book of Acts, this isn't the first time we've seen this pattern happen. If you remember back to Acts chapter 2, what happens in Acts chapter 2, anybody? Holy Spirit falls. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on the church. It's like the birthday of the church. And what happens? You see all this miraculous stuff going on. You see the wind, the fire, the violent noise. You have people speaking in tongues. And what does Peter then do? He explains it. You get the evidence. Then you get the explanation. It's like, again, there is a platform from which to speak to people. So in chapter 3, what Peter has done is explain the miracle, and he roots it back into the historical faith of Israel. Chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. This Jesus, the name to which this man has been healed, is God's Messiah. All linked back into the historical faith of Israel. But when he starts to talk about resurrection, we find that that causes problems. And what happens is the police appear. You get the captain of the temple guard, and you get a group of people called the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in any form of resurrection, let alone the resurrection of Jesus. And they don't like what's happened. They're disturbed by this teaching. And so Peter and John are, in effect, arrested. They're put, if you like, in a holding cell overnight, and their trial is going to take place the next day in front of the Sanhedrin. Important trials always took place the day after. And so they're hauled in front of this big group of people, the most powerful court that there was that the Jews had. There were 71 people, possibly, in the Sanhedrin. There were rulers. 
There were elders. They were like the lay people. There were probably some who were Pharisees, some who were Sadducees. There were the high priestly families. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been talking about the resurrection and I'd suddenly been hauled in front of the high court to give an account, I would be absolutely terrified. If there were all these people stood there who were going to be questioning me, I would be petrified. Would you feel like that? Yeah? It reminded me, that nothing quite as grand as that, but about two years ago in our church, we had some issues with um, planning regulations. And some of our church building is quite new. And about seven or eight years ago, when the planning application had been put in, there was something that had been missed off it. And as a church, we had to apply for retrospective planning applications. Anybody ever had to put a planning application in for an extension or anything? Yeah, you know the red tape you have to go through and all the procedures. Well, it ended up going to the planning committee at North Links Council. Now, I'm not saying North Links Council is like the Sanhedrin. But it was a bit intimidating, because I had to go and speak at this committee meeting representing the church. And there was a, about 12 councillors sat on one side. There was a whole bank of legal people. There was the chair at the front. The place was packed, because there was a really important case about an out-of-town shopping centre. Not a Nesso, I have to say, but an out-of-town shopping centre. <laughs> Thought I'd get that in somewhere. <laughs> Been dying to get that in. And there's me called up to speak in front of this group of people. Now, I was really scared because normally when I'm talking in front of people, like you are this morning, you're nice, you're pleasant, um, you're nodding your heads every now and again, you're smiling back at me. You know, if I go and do a school assembly, you know, you can wind the kids up and leave them for the teachers to calm down, but it's a pleasant environment. Here it wasn't. It was quite hostile, it was very formal. And to me, it was just like, I wonder whether there was something of that nature in what they were about to experience, but on a much, much bigger scale. For Peter and John, this was very, really, really serious. But they probably weren't surprised that they were ending up here. Because Jesus had already said to them back in Luke chapter 21, that to follow Jesus meant that from time to time you would be hauled in front of governors and kings and people in authority to give account that this was something that would happen. But that same passage has a promise from the Lord. It says, For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. If we're sharing Jesus with our friends or our neighbours, we shouldn't be surprised if from time to time there is opposition to that message. Jesus has said that will happen. The gospel is such that it does polarize people. To some people, it is joy when they hear it. To other people, they reject it. And then we get a question from the Sanhedrin. By what power or by what name did you do this? Do you notice something interesting here? Why were Peter and John arrested? What were they arrested for? Gone, you can answer me. Wasn't healing somebody. Speaking about the, about the resurrection. What they're being questioned about? The miracle. They're being questioned about something for which they've not been arrested. You know, if I was arrested for something, I haven't been arrested for anything, by the way, just in case I was beginning to worry it. But if I'd been arrested for something, and then it was questioned about something totally different, I'd want to know what was going on. But there's a real issue in the Sanhedrin here. Resurrection was not something they agreed on. You've got the Sadducees, who were probably part of the Sanhedrin, who didn't agree with any type of resurrection. The Pharisees, who agreed with some sorts of resurrection, but they weren't into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so why talk about something you can't agree on? 
So what did they end up asking them questions about? Something they could see before them. They knew that a man had been healed. There was an obvious sign. So they want to know how that has happened. Was it magic? By what power? You know, was this something terrible that had happened? In what name? Was it in a name other than the name of the God of Israel? And if they were going to be found guilty, it would be incredibly serious for them. So Peter and John are brought before them. The Sanhedrin probably met in a semicircle, so they're dragged in front of them, really intimidating place to be. And then you get to verse 8. If you look at your, your Bibles in verse 8, it says, Then Peter filled with the Spirit. I love the way Luke puts that, puts that in. You know, Peter filled with the Spirit. Just like that, God empowers him for what is to come next. God empowers him. And what we see here is that Luke 21, 15, those words that Jesus spoke are about to come true. The words of promise that Jesus had spoken over the, deli- the lives of the disciples is about to become a reality. Because his word, the words of the Sanhedrin, their accusations cannot stick to Peter. I think it was Tony Blair used to be called Teflon Tony. You know, the, the, the idea that people could say whatever they wanted about him, but it was a bit like a frying pan and things would just slide off. You know, Peter is a little bit like, it, like here. They can say whatever they want, but they can't get the accusations to stick because of the wisdom and the skill with which Peter answers. You know, that leaves me thinking, I don't know whether it does you, in your own Christian life, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, have I or have you, have you ever come close to working out whether that promise is true? Has your faith ever been tested to the extent where you've had to give account for Jesus and actually you don't know what to say? Your own words and wisdom fail you and you just have to rely on God's promise? You know, we love God's promises, don't we? Here are three of my favorite promises of God. You know, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, if you're weary and burdened today, what a great promise that Jesus says, you know, come to me. I am here. Share with me. Or from Paul in Romans, nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God. What another amazing promise that is. You know, that God's love is there. It's there for all eternity when we follow him. Or all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear or harm. But there's a real danger with God's promises. We like those sort of promises because they make us feel sort of warm and cozy. That God is here and that when we're through the tough times, God is carrying us. Now, all that is true. But I think sometimes we can skip over the promises like that one in Luke that actually mean when we're in really tough places, God will do amazing things by his spirit in our lives. But it means we've got to step out. It means we've got to put ourselves in those positions where those words need to be tested. That promise in Luke was a promise that if we get to those places where we're not sure what to say, God's Spirit will use us, will speak through us. For those of you who preach or lead Bible studies, though, that is not an excuse for not preparing. It doesn't mean you just stand and the words naturally come out like that. But it means that when our back is against the wall, when, if you like, the rubber hits the road, when we're in those tough places, if we're reliant on God's spirit, God will give us those things to say. Makes me want to say, Lord, would you put me in those positions where I can test that? That is a really scary prayer, isn't it? Lord, would you put me in those places where I can stand on that promise and hold that promise and see it to be true? You know, I don't know where you go to 
where you meet people outside of church. Perhaps it's in your family, perhaps it's with friends, perhaps it's at the school gate, perhaps it's in the gym, I don't know, or the supermarket. We won't talk anymore about supermarkets. But do you pray that kind of prayer? Lord, would you give me the words to speak to people about the hope I have in the resurrected Jesus? Because we come to Peter's answer, and it's incredible. Luke is really keen for us to realize that actually Peter has not suddenly become the great speechwriter. He's not now President Obama, you know, this great person of rhetoric. But he's just an ordinary bloke. You know, the Sanhedrin pick up on that. These are ordinary, unschooled men, but he's empowered by the Spirit. When God's Spirit gets hold of an ordinary man or woman, that person can do absolutely extraordinary things, not by their own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit of God. And so what happens here? Well, Peter, this bloke who had been a failure, remember Peter had denied Jesus before Jesus had gone to his death. He'd been reinstated by him later, but he knew what failure was like. He knew what it was like to deny Jesus. But here, empowered by the Spirit, he gives this incredible answer. First of all, he says, you brought me here, and I'm being arrested for being kind to somebody. Is that, is that the best you can come up with? I've performed a, a miracle, and this man who couldn't walk can now walk. So he's like, no, this kind of sarcastic indignation. What have you done this for? But then you notice what he does straight away. He points it to Jesus. He points this whole thing back to Jesus. And there's something fascinating going on here. The word for healed in verse 10 is the same root word as the, root, as the word we get for salvation in verse 12. For the Sanhedrin, though, there's now big problems because they can't dispute the evidence. They can't dispute the fact that this man is walking around. This man who couldn't walk is now able to. And we see here, evidence gives again the right for an explanation. Now as you continue in your study of the book of Acts, you'll see that the book of Acts has loads of different ways by which people share Jesus. You see, um, if you know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian is there reading the scrolls of Isaiah, and Philip comes up and says, actually, you know, as you're reading the scriptures... That's all pointing to Jesus. Let me tell you about him. It's like an open door for him. Or you get Paul in Athens. You know, Athens is this philosophical city, this city that had all these altars to different gods. And he finds a connection point with that culture. He finds the, the altar to the unknown God, and he said, this is the God I want to tell you about. All kinds of different ways that in Acts we see the gospel is shared. But here, we have the second time where we get a particular pattern evidence than explanation. And I wonder if that gives us something to think about this morning. I wonder how much of our sharing of Jesus actually works the other way around. That we do a lot of explaining, but don't point to any evidence of the resurrected Christ. We do a lot of talking, but don't say, actually, come and look at how God has changed my life. See what God has done in me. See what has happened in the life of our church that points to the resurrected Jesus. Now, if you want the posh words for it, we, we base a lot of what we do, at least, you know, my experience of churches, what happens has become very attractional in our ministry. You know, saying, come and listen, come and see, but not just come and watch. We're not Jesus in our communities, that incarnational type of ministry. Somebody once said to me, and this really stuck, you may be the closest to Jesus that anyone ever gets. You may be the closest to Jesus that anyone ever gets. If the Holy Spirit is in you, if Christ is in you, 
People seeing that lived out may be the closest they ever get. You don't come across many people sat by the side of the road reading Isaiah. You don't come across that many people debating. You, you might come across some, but in, you know, in deep philosophical societies. We come across a lot of people who will be watching your life, who will be seeing how you live, seeing what your priorities are, seeing how you love and share and the way that you live. The evidence for Jesus at work, you know, it goes far beyond, actually, the physical healing that we see in Acts chapter 3. Now, physical healing is really important. It's an important part of the church's ministry. It's part of the tapestry of what God, do, God, what God does in the lives of people. But it's only one part of it. There's a story um, told that's hundreds and hundreds of years old about uh, middle, the, one of the thinkers of the Middle Ages called Thomas Aquinas, if you've ever heard of him. And apparently he was once sat talking to the Pope at the time. And the Pope was there, and he had all this money spread out in front of him. And he was saying, you know, Thomas, it's great that we don't have to say we don't have silver and gold anymore. To which apparently he replied to him, but isn't it sad we can't say, say, pick up your mat and walk? Isn't it sad that we can't say that? You know, I believe passionately that Jesus heals today. I believe that as we open our scriptures, we see evidence of that healing ministry of Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we see that there are things that, certainly in our experience, we're not yet seeing. You know, Jesus says, you will do greater things than I have done. Yet we're not seeing that. I believe that Jesus wants us to bring people, and we pray for healing in Jesus' name. There are times in my own experience when I've seen people be healed. But there are also times when sadly I haven't witnessed that. And if I'm perfectly honest, you know, our church at the moment, we're not living in Acts 3 days. We're not living in the times when we're commanding people in the name of Jesus to get well. Occasionally we see the first fruits of hopefully what God is going to do more and more of. But there's one thing I think we can say from this passage. The physical healing, although it is important, and although it is something that I believe is important for churches, it's only ever a temporary bit of evidence that points to God. It's only ever temporary. Look at your body for a minute. Just look at yourself. Okay? We are all falling apart. (laughs) I've already said I'm 40 years old. Most of my hair has already left me. I was out in Snowdonia most of last week, and I'm taking longer and longer to recover with aches and pains than I used to. And eventually, like everybody in this room, unless the Lord returns, what happens? We will all die. It's an encouraging thought for this morning. (laughs) If you went to Jerusalem this afternoon, and if you do want to go, I'll come with you. I'm very happy to do that. Um, And you were to go around and say, I'd like to meet the lame man who Peter and John healed. Or I'd like to meet Lazarus, who Jesus called out of the tomb. You will not find them. Because poor Lazarus was one of the few people who's had to die twice. Because the physical healing ministry of Jesus, of the apostles, of the church, is only temporary this side of eternity. Physical healing isn't actually the central message of what is happening here. There's signs of the kingdom, signs of the full shalom and wholeness of God. But eventually, where does does Peter point people to? He points them to the greatest miracle of all, which is salvation in the name of Jesus. To the greatest miracle of all, which is the change which the Spirit of God does when we're born again 
and when we come to know Jesus and we know his forgiveness and we know his transformation. What do we see in chapter 4, verse 12? Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. If you're following Jesus this morning, if you're a Jesus follower, the greatest evidence that people will see of Jesus being alive is what he has done inside of you. The greatest evidence that points to the resurrected Christ is the transformed heart and the transformed life. That you can walk in forgiveness, that you can walk in freedom, that the fruits of the Spirit can be growing in your life and in your heart. That you've come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That the new creation brought about by the resurrection is something that we live in and something that we're part of. And that will all be completed when Jesus returns. It's really important, isn't it, not just to remember what we're saved from, but what we're saved to, what salvation brings us to. So Peter leaves the Sanhedrin with this declaration that everything is done in Jesus' name. The rest, if you like, is the kingdom evidence that points to Jesus being at work. Claire tells me that you're very fortunate to live near Manchester Airport. She's a bit of a a plane spotter. Um, And when we were in Wales last week, we'd be out walking and suddenly I'd hear this squeal from behind me and I thought either Claire had fallen over or, or something. And then I realized it was one of those fighter jets, you know, the trainee fighter jets that go around Snowdonia and it was coming round overhead and she was getting all excited by it. Um, but there's a thing, when you see aircraft, on a, particularly on a clear day, and you watch them fly across the sky, you see that they have a vapor trail behind them. There's evidence that that plane has been there. I just wonder whether that's how we need to think of our lives somehow this morning. That the evidence for the kingdom of God having broken into our experience needs to be in our lives. But you know, there's a problem with the vapor trail. Vapor trails start to fade away fairly quickly. So I was left sort of thinking, actually, we need something better to think about to give this as an example. I was reminded a few weeks ago, we were sat in my parents' conservatory, and the sun suddenly shone into the room. And I looked down at the floor, and there was a slug trail going across the carpet. (laughs) Now, this is not to cast any um, doubt on my parents' ability to clean, the slug had obviously come in through the door and it had gone off doing its own thing. I don't know what slugs do, but it had gone off doing something. But the trail was there to be seen. And unless you went down on your hands and knees and scrubbed it, it would be there for an awful long time. The evidence was there. What evidence is there in your life that Jesus is working? It's the evidence that leaves the Sanhedrin in a pickle. Because they can't deny it. They can't deny evidence. All they can do is to say to Peter and John, stop talking about the name of Jesus. Stop talking about the one who you say is the Messiah. What did they say? Verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. A friend of mine had put this up on Facebook earlier this week. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God? Are your friends, are your family members who are perhaps atheists, are they being persuaded that actually Jesus may be alive because of the fruits of the Spirit that are evident in your life? The people who you meet on a day-to-day basis, are they thinking, actually, there may be something in what you believe in because I've seen that you're different. I've seen your life of discipleship. 
I've seen that being saved by grace means that actually you're free to live out a life that is totally different. You're living as Jesus lived, loving, caring, compassionate. There was a a writer in the second century who wasn't a Christian, but he said of the church, look how these Christians love one another. Is that what your community and limb think about you? Do they see the evidence that here is a group of people with whom God is doing amazing things, whom God is transforming? Is your Christian discipleship giving sufficient evidence to the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus that it warrants an explanation? The healing of a lame man warrants an explanation. Does what God has done in your heart warrant an explanation to people around about you? That's quite an interesting question. I'm not sure how I'd want to answer that, actually. Perhaps you're thinking, well, yeah, it does. You know, I'm always having to explain why I'm so brimming full of joy and full of all these fruits of the Spirit. If so, you know, keep at it. Keep down that road. If you're thinking, well, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I would answer that question. If we don't transform ourselves, God's Spirit does a work in us. Peter was transformed in this passage by the Spirit empowering him. But you know, Peter, he didn't just command the man to get up in the name of Jesus and walk. He then had to give account for how that had happened and why that had happened. The action itself, the evidence itself wasn't enough. Just living a Christian life doesn't automatically point people to Jesus. We do actually have to open our mouths and share Jesus with our friends and our neighbours. Do your words point people to Jesus? Is there evidence? Does it give you a platform? Do your words then point people to Jesus? Look at what happened in verse 21 when this had all taken place. The people were praising God for what had happened. The church continued to grow. We're told by Luke that it's up to about 5,000 at this point. It just makes me want to pray, Lord, would you do the same in our churches, you know, in our own lives? Would you help the evidence of your kingdom breaking out to give us the chance to share the good news that we have of Jesus? Let's just spend a few moments in prayer. Peter said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Lord, I want to pray that you'll help that to be true in our own lives, in our own experiences. Lord, that we just can't help to share that the hope that we have in you. Lord, I want to pray for each of us here this morning that you'll give us great boldness and courage and faith to believe in that promise that says when we need to talk about you, you will give us those words to say. Lord, I want to pray for the the church here, Lord. Would you help this church to just radiate Jesus to the community round about? To be a place that warrants an explanation that more people may come to know you. We ask it for Jesus' sake and for his glory. 
Amen. Amen.